Um, Welcome, everybody. Revelation part, uh, chapter 7, part 3. This is Meet, and it's July 30th. Um, welcome all the people present, and of course, people who are watching through YouTube and Facebook, Heart of the Matter, the Facebook page, and Campus Church on Facebook, and then on the on online archives. Really quickly, Monday, August 7th, 7 p.m. here, a recovery group is beginning. If you're trying to recover from something, show up. And uh, then remember open water baptism and hot dog roast on Sunday, August 20, 20th uh, from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. And people can participate in the baptisms and, uh, and the hot dog eating, baptisms and hot dog eating combined. It's a new thing. Uh, trying to stay current, just kidding. And if you haven't been with us before, we just sing the word of God. We sit for a minute and we come back and get in our verse by verse. We are entering into some new waters, waters that are going to test our preterist views, if that's what you have. Because when we read our text, you're going to say, wow, it doesn't sound like any of this has happened. I have not studied beyond this point. I don't really know how to explain the things that we're going to start to cover. So it's going to test my views, too, to see what does this stuff mean. It's been the section of Revelation I haven't looked forward to because it, the rhetoric is so much, wow, it sounds like that has to happen in the future. And that's probably why so many people believe it's a futuristic thing. Well, we'll see as we get into it. Right now, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for life. We thank you for this time. And uh, sharing a couple hours a week to uh, discuss your word and uh, with each other, fellowship and friendship, and get together with like-minded believers and to prepare ourselves uh, both for life in the hereafter and life here. So we pray for your spirit to be with us and incline us toward your ways and not our own and help us to have that love and that compassion and that patience and that long suffering and that we will look to you and things and not to our own flesh help us to be your children your sons and daughters and to exit this world as such we pray for those we worry about who don't know you and we pray that you will bless them with your spirit we know you are in charge we know that you gave your son to give his life for the whole world and we believe that he accomplished that and now we just pray more people will receive him by faith. And so help us to uh, prepare to talk to them and, and as we study this book. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, welcome back. We're in Revelation chapter 7, and as I said earlier, it's uh, something that's a little bit intimidating because it uh, seems to talk about some destruction that has not yet happened. We've got a lot to talk about, but let's, uh, let's get into it. Last week, uh, we considered chapter 7 to be a break between the seals. We had the first, second, third, and fourth, fifth, and sixth seal described in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is a break in the description of the seals. And uh, we talked about the 144,000 last week, and we talked about the tribes of who and how the 144,000 would come in and out of them. And then we entered into another vision John, uh, John has, which is a heavenly vision. And there it says in verse 9 of chapter 7, And after this, after I had seen the 140, or heard of the 144,000, and lo, a great multitude, I beheld, lo, a great multitude, which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And the angels stood round about the throne, and the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And we discussed the potential meaning of this vision how it was different than the 144,000. The 144,000 were represented as 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes mentioned, excluding Ephraim and Dan. And, uh, and I said that I believed that the innumerable host around the, uh, the throne of God that we saw in the second vision in heaven described all those who went to heaven, all those who have gone, all those who will go. It was a future picture of the heavenly hosts. I also suggested this because I believe that the 144,000 were the few be there that find it, as mentioned by Jesus, straight as the uh, gate narrows the way, few be there that find it. Uh, wide is the gate to destruction, path to destruction. And the 144,000 were such a limited number of the total tribe that I suggested the 144 are the few that found it and are mentioned out of the house of Israel. Finally, even though the stance is tough to support completely, uh, I am personally convinced that God has had total victory over this world through the offering of his son, and all will ultimately be reconciled to him, not necessarily without suffering great loss, but I believe all that he has had a victory, and um, that even the will of man cannot trump the victory of God. However, it doesn't mean that men and women won't suffer great loss after they go through tribulation, all right? So we've talked about tribulation, but I have a problem. Uh, my view of total reconciliation clouded my judgment in my understanding of what we studied last week, and I suggested that the innumerable number that John was seeing was the reconciled host, which John said was just too many to count, right? I now see from further study that that view was wrong. I shared it last week, I change it today. It, it, it's wrong. The book of Revelation, the entire Bible uh, is a record of them. It was a record of that day and age, and it was about them. It was all about them. 
So we, we believe it was all about them going all the way to Genesis, nation of Israel through Abraham. We believe it was all about them all the way through Malachi. We believe there was an intertestamentary period of 400 years of silence. We believe that they were promised a Messiah. We believe that John came and he prophesied of the Messiah to come. He paved the way and he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said the ax is laid at their root, prepare yourself. And then we have the Messiah being born for that group. And the Messiah comes forward and he's born, he lives his life and he does his mission and he, die, he dies and he's resurrected. And it only makes sense that he would come back to them. He would fulfill all scripture and revelation is a record of all of this, all of it's inclusive in that Bible, which we got a full and final copy of many, many hundreds of years later, and we start to read and learn from it. So, why would any of it have to do with us except spiritually, except principally? I don't understand how it would, because all of it up to this last book has to do with Christ, and suddenly we just take this last book and say, but it has to do with another time. It, it, it couldn't. So my desire to see total reconciliation presented in the Bible uh, altered my view. It covered my view. And, and I saw the innumerable throne as representing all of us, everybody. And I don't think it's right, so you have my apologies. Uh, we will see today in our verse by verse why I changed my mind. And we'll go from there. So let's continue on with the text. What John says happened when he saw the innumerable hosts gathered around the throne of God. Verse 13, he says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, They are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, we're kind of assuming here when we read this that he's talking about the whole host. John says, I saw this host. It was no man could count how many there were. And then the elder says to John, who are they? And John says, you know, sir, tell me. And so he explains. Let's talk about those verses. So go back to verse 13. One of the elders answered saying, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? When Revelation speaks of the elders in John's visit or one of the elders, it seems they are representatives of Christ's church. 24 elders, uh, elder meaning old, older, elder, elderly, believers, of course, in the King James. And it's when it says, and one of the elders answered that in the King James, that means one of the elders asked him a question, didn't answer anything. He asked him a question. Let me ask you something, John. In the vision, John was looking on the host and reflecting on the state of this innumerable company that was gathered around the throne. And one of the elders asked him, answer what your observations are. You could say it that way. That's why the King James uses the answer. 
Now, there's some debate here on who the these, who are the these that the elders were, that the elder was asking about. Who is it? When you read it, you think he's talking about the whole host, all dressed in white, all holding palm fronds, and he's asked John, who are they, right? Because John saw innumerable hosts in white waving them before the throne of God, most people believe that John is saying, who, are this, who is this whole host? Uh, but some scholars that I was able to learn from this week suggest that John saw the whole host and that this elder was focused on a particular group that were near the throne of God. So John says, I saw innumerable hosts standing there, and the elder says, and who are these? And he is referring to a special group. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. You have to kind of read into that. The thinking here is that if the host was innumerable and the elder simply said, who are they? that it couldn't refer to an innumerable number when he says these are they that came through the great tribulation because an innumerable number did not come through the great tribulation doesn't make sense for the elder to ask john who are these john says it's an innumerable number and the elder says they are the ones who came through the great tribulation but it would make sense if he was talking about a special group that was there and he says john sees the host and the elder says, well, who are these? And John says, I don't know, you tell me. So again, this view is the elder is directing John to a specific or select group of the innumerable masses and ask him to identify them. It's hard to say if this is right, but in the end, either the whole host that was innumerable came through the great tribulation or the elder was referencing and the elder was referencing them, or the elder was referring to a smaller seg selection of that innumerable host that had come through the great tribulation. Uh, one of the things we can say here clearly is that phrase, great tribulation, that the elder uses to describe what that group was that he was asking about in the white robes, seems to mean those who came through the great tribulation of the final last days. We can say this because of the Greek phrase that is used to describe this group, the elder points out. It, it, let me put it this way. Jesus, he spoke of the, the tribulation and he called it the great tribulation in Matthew 24, which we covered together. So he said, and they, they won't, this won't happen until great, they've come through the great tribulation, right? Well, we have the exact same phrase, and it's the only other time it's used in Revelation, and it's megaphilipsis. So Jesus said, until they come through the megaphilipsis, and the only other time we get that same phrase is here in Revelation chapter 7, where the uh, elder says to John, who are these? And John says, you know, and the elder says, these are the ones who came through the megaphilipsis. Same words Jesus used, right? He said it in Matthew 24, 21, for then shall, great, uh, shall be great tribulation, such as was not since nor the beginning of this world, nor ever shall be. These are the ones that uh, elder said came through that time. Again, we can't believe it was the innumerable host because an innumerable host did not come through that great tribulation. 
So to reiterate, I would suggest the following for your consideration that the 144,000 were special members of the house of Israel that were saved from destruction that the innumerable number around the throne of God waving palm branches, I believe now represents the whole nation of Israel. God made a promise to Israel. He would be faithful even if they were not. Did some get destroyed? Yes, but God would redeem them. I believe that is the host that was around the throne, all in white waving palm fronds. And then the elder asked John about a certain group of that in dressed in white, and he's, these might be the martyrs who came through the great tribulation and were standing before the throne of God. The question the elder asked John is, who are they and where did they come from? And verse 14 says, and I, John, said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, these, and I believe it's probably talking about that specific group, are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, sir thou knowest is a really polite way to speak to somebody or uh, another human being, in this case, an elder, uh, kurios, Lord. He says, Lord, you know. And that's just the polite way to say Lord as if you were addressing a king or something, not the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said unto me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation. Most of what we have read thus far in Revelation pertains to the tribulation of the saints. That's why it was to the seven churches. This is what it's going to look like. Remember back in Matthew 24, when we talked about it, Jesus said to his uh, disciples, Matthew, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he said, no man knows the day, only, only the Father knows. And then Mark said, the angels of heaven, nor the son of man know, only the father knows. When Jesus walked the earth, he did not know the day or time. Now, other Christians and other believers say, oh, he knew it, he was just protecting them, and I think he was telling the truth. He didn't know. When did he find out when it would be? Now, in the revelation given to him by his father, the revelation that we are reading, this is the description of what everything will look like. He's passing it on to John. He's showing him what it's going to look like. And, and so thus far, the day and age hasn't been known as Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, but we can give you some signs. Now we are getting the full unfolding of what it's gonna look like. Most of the epistles written by the apostles were written to them in that day of tribulation. And that's why so much of it is hang on, endure to the end. Don't let go of your first love. Stay in the faith. Don't socialize with those people who are trying to bring you out. That's the context of it. Don't break bread. Don't even open your door to those who are trying. It was that scary of a situation. And it was that tenuous as to where they would be redeemed in, from that dis physical destruction or not. So the elder tells John here that these, a special group, whether it's a special group or the innum innumerable masses, that they were, to, they were the ones who came through the great tribulation and they were the ones who have washed their robes, making them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, this is really beautiful, picturesque language for us too today. 
Will, you know, we could probably create a Christian song. Will your robes be washed in the blood of the Lamb when you stand before the throne? Uh, I mean, it's a very picturesque thing. Ha and it's emblematic of has your life been cleansed by faith in Christ and his shed blood? Has the blood of the Lamb washed your sin away? That's the picture. Um, but there's a bit of an immediate paradox in it, we can see. I mean, there's nothing on earth, and this is really important. We're talking about spiritual language here. Having your clothes washed in the blood of the lamb here would do nothing. Actual clothes in blood for, from a human being would do nothing but uh, make you guilty. That's how we prove guilt, you know. He had blood all over him. Blood stains. It's one of, a brutal stain that you get in your clothing, tough to get out. So it's a heavenly language. And that means sin is washed away by the blood of the lamb by and through faith. That is what it means. And when you just take it literally, it's very poetic and picturesque. But it doesn't mean that. It means John is seeing a heavenly vision. And in that heavenly vision, he sees innumerable hosts, and they're wearing their robes, and they've been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And so it's a heavenly purification, which is what we seek. You know, while we're here, we still have the earth stains of life. We still have sin on the, on the tablet. We're going to. It's our flesh. We live in a fallen state, and our flesh is not perfected. But has the blood of the Lamb washed your heavenly robe, we could say, and purified it? when you stand before uh, the throne. So uh, only in the case of Jesus and his death could and would his shed blood have the ability to take people who are living in a corrupted state and they pass and they go into heaven and they are seen in a glorious state. That's the hope we have. That's the expectation we have as Christians, that we place our faith on Christ and his life and death. And when we die or our loved ones die, we believe they are absolutely, completely cleansed by the shed blood of Christ through faith. That's the heavenly message. And so the, the, uh, John is receiving this from the elder. These are they. They've come through the great tribulation that the apostles and Jesus has warned them about, and their robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, we have to be careful that their robes are not white because they made it through the great tribulation. They did not earn it. Um, the only reason they are before the throne of God in clean white robes is because those robes were washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And that's why it's explained this way. So there's no getting it mixed up. Ah, oh, they went through the great tribulation. They're worthy now. No, 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 no. They are worthy because of the shed blood of the Lamb that cleansed them. So don't take the two and cross them and make them one. Um, they may be distinguished in heaven by different factors, as the 144,000 were who made it through the Great Tribulation, but in the end, all are only there by and through the shed blood of the Lamb. So the elder continues and says at verse 15, therefore, okay, now we have a therefore. Where there's a therefore, there's a wherefore in Scripture. Therefore, right? That's a big word when you see it in Scripture. Uh, having been washed in the blood of the lamb, standing in white robes, holding the palm fronds, which are symbols emblematic of peace in scripture. Therefore are they before the throne of God. 
Last thing he said, because their uh, uh, robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, therefore they are in before the throne of God. And what are they doing before the throne of God? Now, this phrase used to really bug me because I used to dread the idea of sitting on the cloud and playing the harp forever. That's the way Mormons typically criticize Christians. Oh, what are you going to do? Just die and play a harp on a, on a cloud forever and ever? Uh, you're going to just go and just worship God forever and ever and ever? That just sounds like a horrible thing, you know? And in reality, in our world, our economy, that might sound a little bit mundane, uh, repetitive. So is that what we want? Well, listen to what he says. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them the elder gives john this therefore therefore is a way of saying as a direct result of these therefore the reason why they are before the throne of god therefore because the blood was applied therefore because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb they now serve him night and day in his temple now don't get it confused with earthly temples made of stone carved with hands don't get it confused with a mount moriah temple or the lds temples um sorry i'm bringing them up but that's what, kind of what our reference point is here often uh his temple is heaven that's the real temple the material temples are pictures and types in ancient israel of heaven to come they are not a replica of what heaven will be like. They're just types and pictures. So in his temple, he's not in a marble-floored, uh, gold uh, faucet place. It just means he's in his, where God dwells, in his holy temple. So, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Uninterrupted service is what it really is implying. Serve him day and night is uninterrupted service constant devotion continually in the presence of god who will dwell among them now again in our world that can sound somewhat hellish if you just really just kind of are coffee talking and just saying i'm not really not so sure about that laboring day and night as a servant uh, but i'm just being honest but we are uncertain about exactly how this would play out in another dimension in fact there probably is nothing greater than to be in the presence of God and serving him day and night. We won't have the wear and tear on the physical body. We won't have getting tired. We will be of the spirit. And that's serving him day and night. We have to take that in context of what that means in spiritual sense, not in the literal physical sense. You know, there's no weariness. There'd be no need for in intermission. And uh, the, in the servants of God, it seems to be, would unequivocally be the greatest thing we could possibly be doing. Like if you were able to be in the service of a great king here who was benevolent and loving and light and good and kind and for your interest and knew you and you were in that presence every day and you're able to serve, that is getting closer to what the idea would be. Instead of just sitting on the cloud and playing a harp like people like to diminish it, I think we can't comprehend what it actually would be like. The elder also says that he sits on the throne would dwell among them. That's pretty radical. A term that from the Greek means uh, he would pitch his tent among them. He would pitch his tent. Now, I personally interpret this, and my estimation could be wrong. Jesus 
in his resurrected form took on a tabernacle and is our mediator to God, the invisible God. Jesus, fully God, is, I believe, the one who is going to dwell. God is going to dwell in that tent, and that tent, Jesus, will live among us. He will be among us. I'm not alone in that. Reverend Vernon McGee used to teach that, that it would be Jesus who would always be the mediator between the human race and between the uh, spirit God. And so when we're there, we will have the fullness of God fully embodied, dwell, in dwelling in that pitch tent, in the, in the uh, resurrected body of Christ, who will be in and around us. And um, so to see the one is to see the other, Jesus taught Thomas, right? And this supports the view that Christ is our direct representation to the invisible God and something to consider. Uh, continuing the conditions of those who would be there in the midst, the elder says not only would they continually serve him night and day and he would dwell in their midst in a uh, tent pitched, it says, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat. Now, this is first quoting from Isaiah 49.10. That gives us the physical application of that, that there is a promise given through Isaiah that they would hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, and the sunlight on them. Now, that's a, fit, a literal physical thing. Why would God say that to his children back in Isaiah? Because in that day when you're a nomadic crowd and you haven't established your home or you're in warfare, you know, especially back there, the heat is terrible. You probably went hungry often. You were probably thirsty. Anybody in an arid uh, land is going to be have thirst. And so that's the application. Isaiah told it to him as a promise that what God would give them, it's being reiterated here in Revelation. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 informs us, contrary to people's views, that the resurrected body is a spiritual body. I challenge you. I ardently challenge you to read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44, and explain to me how it's anything but a spiritual body, perfected, equipped, gifted to us by God based on what we have sown in our spirit. And it will be a body that isn't going to be encumbered by hunger and thirst and by um, the heat of the day. It is a glorified spiritual body. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 altogether if you want to see a view. And yet still today, so many people, well, I can't wait for my body to come up out of the, I can't wait for my grandpa who died back in 1810, come up out of that grave, you know, and this more and more of this physical, who, I don't want it, man, you know, but the spiritual body that scripture says God gifts us according to his will, that thing you want. That is what we want when we die and we go to heaven. We want him to gift us with that spiritual body. So check out 1 Corinthians 15, start at like verse 23, read all the way through it and study closely what Paul says about the resurrected body. And maybe you'll come to the same conclusions I have and many others, that the resurrection is entirely spiritual. Forget about, and then we go into the concept of, well, then why was Jesus raised from the grave physically? complete separate topic we could spend two weeks on it but there is a good answer for it i'll leave it at that so neither hunger no thirst neither the need for the rays of the sun neither intense burning rays of heat but the light of god bearable in and through the shed blood of jesus christ there is no shadow 
or, uh, or stain on the people before him, and they live in his midst. At verse 17, the elder seems to give the spiritual, heavenly response to hunger, thirst, and the misery of having to live under the burning sun. He says, for, so he first talks about how they won't have hunger or thirst and all that, and he says, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. So now we have a direct connection between Jesus the lamb feeding those who are around the throne in the presence of God who has pitched his tent among them the lamb will feed them and he will lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes so we have further uh, 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 explanation of what it's looking like right from this verse the lamb which is in the midst of the throne remains the great agent the great agent between God and man in promoting the happiness of the redeemed. He has in his pitch tent going about and he is in the midst of the throne and he is feeding all those who are, what's he feeding them? Bread, fish sticks, no. He is feeding them words of life. He's feeding them words of wisdom. He's feeding them information that we can't fathom. Stuff maybe we don't even know, but he's still feeding in heaven and shall lead them to living fountains of waters. We know that's not material. And we're talking about life, more and more life bubbling up forever and ever as he promised the woman at the well. And God shall wipe away the tears. When it says that he shall feed, the word there is poimani, poimani and it is a word that is used to uh, describe shepherds and what they do with a flock. So if you have a shepherd of 100 sheep and you go up and say, what do you do for the flock? And he says, I feed them. That's all he says. We'd say, is that it? Uh, that's it. Well, what he means by that is he cares constantly for them. So poimani applied in scripture to a shepherd means he does everything for them. He does everything. Remember Jesus says greatest in the kingdom of heaven, uh, the servant will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, and here we have, right in Revelation, a vision John saw that where the elder says, and the lamb will feed them, poimani. He will care for them, he will guide them, he will lead them to living fountains of living waters. He will continue on uh, leading and guarding and guiding. The idea of Jesus leading the saved to living waters, very symbolic for somebody who came from the house of Israel. I mean, it, just like the woman at the well, when you say he will lead you to living waters, they understood what this meant. This meant a constant flow of water that didn't come from a dead source. It came from a never-ending source, upflowing of water where refreshment was constant. The imagery, again, is spiritual. You know, apply it to your physical world and you'll see what a wonderful thing it would be to have a well that constantly sprung up for you wherever you went and you had fresh water everywhere you went. This is what it's kind of implying in the spiritual sense. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So this is taken also from uh, Isaiah 25, 8. And the Lord, it says, the Lord God shall, excuse me, will wipe away tears from off all faces. So we have the fulfillment here among the very people of God. Those by birth, those by adoption, those standing around the throne, those who have made it through the great tribulation. We can take the phrase literally, and to take it literally means that the citizens of heaven, when they cry, 
This is the literal application. God will dry their tears, giving them solace. That implies that in heaven, its inhabitants weep, okay? Some people say, no, 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 that couldn't be. But that's a literal thing. So people who argue for literal biblical interpretation, you can ask them, what about that one? Is God literally wiping the tears from people's eyes? Because that's what it says. And if that's the case, that means people are crying in heaven. That means that there is sorrow in heaven. Do you agree with that? And they say, no, I don't agree with that. Well, then maybe we don't take everything literally. Maybe there are some things that we have to interpret. Now, the, uh, we can take the imagery symbolically and suggest that in heaven, no tears are ever shed. Um, because God has wiped them away from like a Hebrew sense. There is, no, there is no misery, there is no woe, there are no tears. God has wiped away every tear. That's the better way to understand it, in my estimation. And so, but you can't take the scripture literally if you're gonna understand it that way. And it just, I'm just trying to prove the point that sometimes you gotta think about the passages. So this is describing a state where human beings are either having a hard time and they're weeping and God dries their tears, or the humans in the afterlife are never gonna have a hard time because God has wiped away their tears once and for all. Uh, because these heavenly hosts have been through so much, the great tribulation, etc., cetera, um, it seems like this set of passages are all about comforting them in the space between the sixth seal and the unveiling of the seventh seal in chapter uh, eight. So, and that brings us to chapter eight. And we'll get into it quickly and go to the board and then we'll get out of here. I wanna do a little preview of the way things begin to unfold for us here. Uh, admittedly, I have not gone and read these from a preterist view. I have only read them and read them and read them and just tried to remain as objective as possible, if that's possible, about what they're actually saying. And when you do that, you do say, wow, it sounds like some stuff is coming down the pike that we are yet to see, right? And we'll talk about that. Um, so I'm honest, if we get through it and I say, wait, I, I have to change my view, I will. I'll go back to being a futurist if we get through this, these next segments and it says things that we cannot justify by and through a fulfillment eschatology. But I wanna to go to the board for a second and I'm just kinda of walk you through of what we can start to understand um, about all of this. <coughs> the, we have the seven seals and those we've discussed and we talked about how that there was a scroll and it had perhaps along a line seven different seals that as each one were broken, it unveiled new things. We've gone through that in chapter six, seals one through. Then in chapter eight, verses six through nine and chapter 11, we're introduced to seven trumpets. And um, they are going to be announcing new things that are going to be coming new seal, new trumpet. And then we have seven bowls. The better definition would be seven vials. And as they are unloaded on the earth, they are going to 
present new things that are supposed to happen. Now, I want you to understand that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials, they overlap on each other. In fact, when the last seal of something happens, it introduces us to the first trumpet of something happened, which the last trumpet introduces us to the first vial. So there's an overlap there. There also seems to be a relationship between the contents of what is described in each seal, each trumpet, and each vial. So it's almost like we have three chessboards and the game is being played and on this level, this level, this level, vials, trumpets, and seals, the pieces are moving in the same way. It's, it's, it's almost like a reiteration. Maybe not. Maybe this is a chronological order. We first have this, we then have that, and we then have this, but we'll have to see as we go forward and we'll get more into this. These are three succeeding series of end time judgments that are coming upon to a futurist, the world, to a historist, the histories of the world, to an idealist spiritually, and to a preterist upon the nation of Israel for rejecting Christ. The judgments get progressively worse. So you'll see that the first one does something and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as they are opened. More devastating end time progress. The seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are connected one to another. As I said, the seventh seal introduces the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. That's what we're going to start studying. And then the seven trumpets introduce to us the seven bowls or seven vials. That's Revelation 11 and Revelation 15. As we've seen, the first four of the seven seals, one through four, already covered, uh, they introduce us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We spent a lot of time talking about them. The first seal also introduces to us the Antichrist. And we've talked about who that is and who that could be. Both in the future, we're waiting for that great European leader who's rich and Damien uh, to do it, or we are, we've seen it, or it's a repeated cycle where they just keep popping up. We've talked about the Antichrist. The second seal, great warfare comes about. The third seal causes famine. The fourth seal brings about plague, more famine, another more warfare. The fifth seal tells us those who would be martyred for their faith in Christ during the end times. God hears their cries for justice. He will deliver in his timing in the form of the sixth seal along with the trumpets and the vile judgments. Again, all representing a series of judgments. When the sixth of the seventh seal is broken, a devastating earthquake occurs, causing massive upheaval, terrible devastation, and with unusual astrological phenomena occurring at the same time. When we covered those before, we've talked about how all of those things were present, all of them, famine, um, signs in the heavens, astrological signs, and uh, earthquakes, all present in seven, prior to 70 AD. Those who survive cry the words out that Jesus says in Matthew 24, fall on us mountains, let us hide from the face of the throne of God for the wrath of the lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Well, Revelation 6, 16, 17 repeats those words that Jesus said people will say when the whole thing falls out. After the seven seals, we get to the trumpets, which we're gonna begin to cover next week. 
and they're described in Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, which we are going to read. That's going to introduce us now, trumpets, seals done. The seven trumpets, listen, are the contents of the seventh seal. So when we get to the seventh seal, with one through six, we understand. Now we're going to get to seventh seal, and seventh seals describes the seven trumpets. All right? And the first trumpet causes hail and fire that destroys much of the plant life of the world. Now we're going to check the Greek. Are we talking about the entire world? I have not checked it yet. The, the second trumpet begins what seems meteors hitting, and it says the oceans causing death of much of the world's sea life. Again, the, all the world, sea life by a meteor. Now, this is when futurists really get strong because, I mean, that's scary stuff, and we have not seen a meteor strike the earth and cause most of the sea life to die, so that's why there are people waiting to see that. The third... Uh, uh, Trump is similar to the second, but this strikes the lakes and the rivers, not just the sea. So I'll tell you one thing, we don't want to be on earth if this stuff is yet to happen. If a meteor strikes and the, the sea turns to blood and the fish die and the lakes and rivers all go, it's bye-bye fathead. I mean, you do not want to be here in that situation. It would cause such unhealthy living uh, conditions, and yet we're, you know, we have to see, how is it ever fulfilled? The fourth of the trumpets causes the sun and the moon to be darkened. Are you seeing the overlap that we have in the, in, the, in the seals? We're starting to see similar stuff. The fifth trumpet results in a plague of these horrific locust demon beings that uh, seem like they're man size, and they go about and they are demonically possessed and they seem to destroy we're going to read about them how could they have been fulfilled aren't they something that will come the sixth trumpet releases demonic army that kills one-third of humanity now we have to say has it happened did it happen how do we justify it and the seventh trumpet calls forth angels and those angels guess what they bring with them they bring with them the seven vials now, you know as well as I do that seven is a number of completion. So it's repeated over and over and over again in Revelation as a message from God to Christ and Christ to John. This is the end. This is the end. The thing we have to discover, end of this world, this cosmos, all human race, or the end of that age. We'll get to that. So the angels bring forth the seven vials, seven vile judgments. They're described in Revelation chapter 16, which we'll get to in the future. They're called forth by that seventh trumpet. The first vial causes sores to break out upon people, humanity. The second bowl results in the death of every living thing in the sea, every. The meteor causes most. This next vial kills everything off. The third bowl causes rivers to turn into blood. The fourth vile bowl, either one, results in the sun's heat intensifying so much that it creates great pain upon the earth. The fifth bowl causes great darkness, and because of that darkness, for some reason, the sores that are on the people, the pain from them is intensified. 
and the Sixth Bowl results in the Euphrates River. Interesting, the Euphrates River, which is, you know, a major river to us, but anyway, it gets dried up. And the armies of the Antichrist are gathered together to wage war of Armageddon. Now, we have some serious explaining to do from a fulfillment perspective. I don't know how you can explain the Euphrates drying up, the armies gathering together for the battle of Armageddon, the great sores, the darkness. I don't know how it's explained. We'll see if it can be. If not, we have to toss fulfillment uh, eschatology and look to the future for these things to happen. Otherwise, the book of Revelation's a farce, and therefore, we shouldn't even be studying it. So we gotta see. The seventh bowl results in a devastating earthquake followed by giant hailstones, and that's the, the then we have the wrap-up after that. Key to all of this is in Revelation chapter 16, verse five through seven. I'm sticking strongly with fulfillment here, because of passages like this. It says, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One. So he's talking about all these things that are coming down upon the earth or upon the land or upon the people. And what it says here is you, God, you are just in all these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged ready for they for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve yes lord god almighty true and just are your judgments so in the midst after having all this stuff laid out for us we have the writer in revelation say you are just God of bringing all this out upon this people because they have killed your saints and your prophets. We have to ask, have we killed the saints and the prophets? Have we killed them? I don't think it's applicable. And it's these types of things that come through that say this is fulfilled. How? We'll have to see. So this takes us all on a very apocalyptic journey. And we're going to have to open up our eyes and I have to study my brains out to figure out how is this fit? Does it work? And I promise you, I swear to God as my witness, and I know you're not supposed to do that, I swear to whatever is of value in my life, uh, I will do my best to honestly represent what we find and say it as it is. Best of my ability, may God bless us as we sojourn down. So I want to read through our text to wrap it up for today, and then next week we'll start breaking it all down. As we read through it, let it soak into your mind. Hear what the words say. See what you're thinking this is actually telling us, and then we will wrap it up. <sighs> Revelation chapter 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven the space of a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. The other angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with prayers of the saints ascended up before God unto the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And now we enter into the seven trumpets. Verse 7. 
The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast to the earth, and the third part of trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and it was a great, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the, that's why they say it's a meteor, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so that the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Chapter 9, verse 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as a smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and upon them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have given power. And it was commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither every, any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So this is going back retroactively to those who had the seal in their forehead, which occurred in the uh, chapter 7, in that period of space between the sixth seal and the seventh. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as a torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads it were as crowns like gold, and their faces were the faces of men." And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and their stings were in their tails, and their power to, was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is an, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue it is Apollyon, one woe is past, and behold, there are two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Euphrates. And the fourth angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay a third part of men. And a number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone, 
and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these was a third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. And their power was in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were likened to serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor talk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. Let all that sink in. It's understandable why people would read that and fear that this is coming, especially when we look at the condition often of our world and what the, the moral decisions that men and women continue to make. Um, <clears throat> it seems like, wow, if we're gonna have anything stop the trajectory we're on, it's gonna be something like this. Think about it, we'll come back next week and we'll start talking about the trumpets and see what we have, what the Bible has to say about them. Quick reminder before we, oh, question, questions, comments, if there are any. Anything, anything? Nope. We got our brother. Hi. What is the mark of God in your forehead? What does that mean? We talked about that when we uh, covered it. And John Stephen, for instance, believes it's the name of Jesus. Contextually, looking at the Bible, the Jews put phylacteries on their forehead and they wrote the law, remember? And they would put the law in those phylacteries when they would pray because the law told them to put God's law on their forehead. I believe that that mark in the forehead is people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and have the Word of God in their mind. They have their minds renewed by God. That's what I think. But there's different opinions. That makes sense. Thanks. Good question. Anything else? All right, let us pray and move out to where it's hot. <sighs> Lord, we, uh, we love you and seek you and um, thank you. We pray your spirit to be with us. Help me to understand this, not as any kind of prophet, but just help me to understand what this book is talking about and guide us the, the proper way and help people who have conflicting views, share them and, and think for themselves so we can come to some understanding with the information pre uh, presented. These things have been debated. I, I urgently, publicly ask you to help us to understand them so that we can be informed and know what your word is saying. You say to ask if we are lacking wisdom and, and we lack wisdom in applying these rightfully. Um, if it's future, let us know. If it's past, let us know. And if it's an ongoing cycle of things that continue to happen in the human race, verify that for us, Lord. But keep us open to your spirit and the truths you want us to know. We pray for Diana, fell and broke her femur, painful, has horrible body problems uh, with joints and bones and cancer and, and uh, loss of body parts to cancer and her body's weak and she just fell and she's not in a good shape. So we just pray that you'll bless her and give her peace and comfort and help her to, uh, to uh, look to you and have your uh, healing hand upon her. We pray for Patrick, his mom Suzanne's health, and for his brother, Paul, that he will come to know the Lord. We pray for 
uh, Michael's life and his life decisions for Roger, recovery from surgery. We pray, I pray personally uh, for Matt, my soon-to-be brother-in-law who uh, fell and broke his leg. Uh, and we just pray that you, the doctors who perform surgery will heal him and it won't affect his uh, work and he'll be able to continue to move forward in his pr uh, profession. We then pray, Lord, for each other in the silence of our hearts, we're dealing with all sorts of things. We deal with, with guilt and we, we deal with shame. We deal with darkness. We deal with depression. We deal with loss. We deal with fear. And we, we deal with sorrow. And we just pray that you will help us to have the eternal view in mind. More and more, Lord, the world is causing us to have the immediate view and we just pray that you will equip us and encourage us to realize that this life is but a vapor on a glass and let us have that eternal view and not part with people over, over foolish things, but use your faith and, and your love that you give us to be able to walk through this life. <clears throat> we love you, Lord. We seek you. We pray your blessings on all those who are at home or watching online that uh, they will receive the the worthy things that you see them standing in need of and you'll make yourself known when they receive it so that they will give you all the glory in jesus name amen